Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. Well, good morning, everybody. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, worship team. And I just want to, before we dig in today, um, just say, Matt, I really appreciate you. He and I had a about a two-minute conversation in the back last Sunday, and I told him what I was going to be preaching on, and, and uh, I couldn't pick out the songs better. He doesn't just throw a song randomly together. He thinks about what the passage is going to be, and, and so we really appreciate you, brother. Thank you. And also, on behalf of the leadership team, I just want to uh, tell everybody how excited we are for you to meet Dave DeHaan and, and his wife, Mickey, and their children, and see if I got them all, Caleb, Olivia, Will, Anna, and Ben. I've got, a, I've got an acronym in my head for their names. So, <laughs> so uh, they really love the Lord, and, and uh, um, Dave does a wonderful job of handling the Word, and I, I just know that you're, you're going to love them, and, and uh, we're excited for them to start with us. So uh, if you would, open your Bibles to John chapter 17. Um, when I was originally trying to figure out what I wanted to preach on today, I thought about us as a church that's in transition, you know, our our beloved pastor who we've had for 13 years is leaving us, and, and um, God's calling him to another field. And, and I thought about the time frame when, when Jesus began to tell his disciples, I'm going away. I'm not going to be with you. I'm, I'm leaving, and I'm going to the cross, and I'm going back to the Father. And I think about how freaked out by that they must have been. And they, they showed that. You know, uh, in chapter 14 of John, Philip said, you know, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know how to get there? And, and Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, you know the way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I thought this passage would be appropriate today. Um, it's his prayer right before he is betrayed and he goes to the cross. Um, but before we dig in, I thought we'd set this up by talking about personality profiles. You, you may have heard of the the, uh, I'm not sure what it's even called, but where they, they, they classify you by an animal. Everybody heard of that? There's, there's a lion, and there's an otter, and a beaver, and a... What was it? <laughs> Golden retriever, yes. Yes. The lion is bold and strong, probably the type A personality. They'll go in the room, and they take charge. Golden retriever is the calm, laid-back, friendly person kind of takes life as it comes. The otter is the fun-loving, loves to laugh, loves to make people laugh, um, just loves to play games. And the beaver is the organized, methodical, ducks-in-a-row type person. They've got to have everything right in line. And if you ask Dawn, she will tell you I am not a beaver. In fact, if uh, I live on the other side of the zoo as the beaver. However, there's one part where I, I think I am kind of a beaver, and that's in something like today, or, or doing a Bible study, I love outlines, I love diagrams, which you're going to see some diagrams today. Um, I have my sermons charted out. I manuscript my sermon, so I put it word for word normally what I'm going to say. Not that I read it word for word, but then I've got it in my head, and I'm not going to get off on a tangent. And, and I usually use 12 font, and it comes out to 18 pages, and every two pages is five minutes. So I can look at the clock and think, okay, I'm right here, I'm doing Okay. So I don't want to scare you, but I changed my font to 14. <laughs> I'm using diagrams. Instead of 18 pages, I have 28 pages. So I could be done in 30 minutes, or it could be an hour and a half. So if I get toward the end and I'm running late, I won't be offended if you do all do this. So 
Um, but as I, I actually, Don will tell you, I'm probably a combination in that personality profile of a, a golden retriever and an otter. I love to have fun. I always have. As a young boy, it was pretty much a, my life. I love to tell jokes, knock-knock jokes. I love to play games and maybe play games on people. I love to make them laugh in any way that I could. Family picture time was not a good time for my parents. <laughs> That's when I would always try the head tilting. I, I still can think of, I believe it was an Easter Sunday picture. Um, we're all set to go, and at the last second, I tipped my head. And that's the picture that we have. And that was before digital, so you couldn't really, you know, you couldn't redo it as well as you can today. But um, the funny thing is how God works. I, we now have a three-year-old son, Matthew Isaac. And we, many of us know Isaac means laughter. And Matthew is the spitting image of me. If you look at our pictures when I was two and he was two, you wouldn't be able to tell them apart. But Matthew pretty much likes to have fun 24-7. He likes to tell jokes and play games. He likes to make people laugh any way he can, and, and sometimes his jokes will match the, the punchline and the rest of the joke will match, and, and when it doesn't, it's still just as funny. And when the camera comes on, it's funny FaceTime for him too. So I'm beginning to know what my parents went through. But we were at the, the dinner table a few weeks back, and, and I was correcting him for something. And in the middle of my correction, he starts to do this. And... You know, I'm getting irritated, but at the same time, I'm starting to laugh inside myself. And, and Dawn and Mackenzie are trying to smirk, and I'm like, you know, and, and, and I, I just was having a hard time bursting out laughing. And um, anyways, we have to work on that a little bit with him. But again, it's hard to know when the funny ends and when the series begins. And, and uh, hopefully he'll mature in that as I have uh, over the years. At least I hope I have in some ways. But it's interesting because Matthew reflects me. He reflects my character and my nature. And God created mankind to reflect his character. That's what it means to glorify him. He, he created image bearers. And he created man and woman to walk in unity and love with one another and to carry out his mission that he gave them on earth. Now we know that God is perfect in every way. He's perfectly holy. He's perfectly one. He's, perfectly, uh, he's perfect in knowledge and power and everything that he is. And we know that sin has corrupted man and his ability to glorify God. But the good news that we celebrate is that Jesus Christ has come and he's made the way for us to be reconciled to God and to be recreated in his image so that we can glorify him in our lives. God created us in unity and love because God is one. Um, in Deuteronomy, he says, the Lord our God is one. And yet he exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God, three persons, all equally God, all perfectly one in mind and heart. And his love is reflected in the statement in 1 John. He says, God is love. That is his nature. So he is one and he is love. And his love is others-centered. It's a deeply devotional and giving love. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And no greater love has anyone than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. The love of God is perfectly manifested in the cross of Jesus, the perfect Son of God dying in our place for our sins. But God created man and gave him a mission, and we have a, my first diagram for the day. Um, there it is. He created man with a mission. He created him in his image to, to 
bring him glory. That's in the middle. And he created him in unity and love. Genesis 1, he says, let us make man in our image. So man is created in the image of God, the divine nature, in a relationship of love and unity with each other. He said male and female, he created them. Man is now created in the image of God and is a partaker of God's nature, his mission and his relationship that's rooted in unity and love. He's created to love God and he's created to love others. He's created to live in unity with God and others. And his mission is to bring image bearers into the world and to work and keep God's kingdom. For he says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then he puts him in a garden and he, he tells him to take care of it. So man is given the mission to, take, to go into God's kingdom and bring more image bearers into the world and to take care of God's kingdom. And woman... Eve is given to Adam as a helpmate, and they're to do this together in unity and love for the glory of God. So creation, in creation, the unity and love that exists between man and woman, and thus all mankind, is expressed in a united, loving relationship and in carrying out the mission of God for the glory of God. When we get to chapter 3 of Genesis, we find out that sin corrupted us, and there's my second diagram. Man's image, God's image in man is now marred. The relationship is broken. Love is corrupted. And the mission is corrupted. Man no longer seeks God's glory in his work. Instead, he seeks his own glory. He's driven by selfish ambition. And he no longer lives for the divine trinity, but he lives for the human trinity of me, myself, and I. And creation itself is now corrupt. The good news, diagram three, is before any of this occurred, before God ever created anything or spoke anything into existence, he had a, a redemptive mission himself that he planned. In Genesis 3.15, he promised that the seed of the woman, the coming Messiah, would crush the head of the serpent. And then in the Old Testament, he unfolds that Messiah would come and die for the sin of mankind and rise again. And unity between God and man is restored through the redemptive work of Christ. And all creation one day, when Christ returns, will be united in him without any sin, without any pain, with nothing, to, no blemish on it. So with the cross in the middle, the image of God through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit is restored in man through the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. And the relationship between God and, and mankind is restored and the relationship between the people of God is restored. Unity and love are restored. And the mission of God now that we all have as believers is to bring this good news of re the redemptive work of Christ to the world. We get to do that through the agency of the Holy Spirit. The gospel is received. People are recreated in the image of God and now live again in relationship with him and with each other in unity and love, and, and we get to tell people about that. And God's glory dwells in the church and in the believing individual. And one day, as we said, Jesus will return and usher in the new heavens and the new earth, and there will be perfect unity in all of God's creation. So all of that, to come to this point in time in John 17, and if you have your Bibles, if you open there, and the heart of this prayer of Jesus 
is that the body of Christ would display the glory of God by carrying out his mission of taking the gospel to the world in unity and love. Christ has come. He's fulfilling his redemptive mission that he and the Father and the Spirit had planned before creation. So we come to John 17, verses 1 to 5. Jesus begins this prayer by communing with the Father in the first five verses, and then the, the second half of the passage, he's going to intercede for the disciples. And we'll see in verses 6 to 19, it focuses on the mission. He's handing the mission off to them. And in verses 20 to 26, focuses on the relationship that the believers have with one another as they carry out that mission. And I think one thing that I love about this passage, if you look at verse 20, and we'll get to it in a little bit, he includes us in that prayer. 2,000 years ago, he prayed this prayer, and he had KBC in mind when he prayed it. Verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. Here's the mission of God. It's to glorify himself by saving a people out of the world for himself. To accomplish as he must send his son into the world to die on the cross for their sins and purchase eternal life for them. The time of redemption has come. God has made this plan before the creation of the world, and now the time for carrying out this plan has arrived. In these verses, we see the unity of the Father and the Son, the unity in their love for each other in carrying out this mission. In other passages, we see the Holy Spirit included in this. In chapters 14 through 16, John Jesus really focused on the Holy Spirit and that he was going to send the Holy Spirit. So we see the Godhead working in perfect unity and love to carry out his mission. Jesus says, Father, the hour has come. And what is this hour? This is the hour for Jesus to go to the cross. The time for his earthly ministry has reached its epic fulfillment, the sacrifice of himself for the redemption of the world. John has been building up to this throughout this, this gospel. He, he used the hour, the, the, the phrase the hour throughout the gospel. Earlier in the book, Jesus kept saying, my hour has not yet come. But now he's saying, my hour has come. And this is the epicenter of all history. Paul describes it in the book of Galatians as the fullness of time. The time has been building and now it has come, the time for Jesus to go to the cross. And it's important to notice as Jesus speaks this, he's in complete control from start to finish. Jesus is showing God controls the timetable and even though there was these people that hated him and they were going to crucify him, he was the one in control. He was the one calling the shots. And it's important as a side note that we remember that. God is always in control of every circumstance in our life, no matter how bad it is or how good it is. When we belong to Christ, we can rest assured that God is working everything out for our good and for his glory. 
Now here he asks the Father to glorify himself in the Son, that the Son may glorify him. He's asking the Father to glorify himself in the cross, to put his, his uh, glory on display, to manifest who he is. And how are the attributes of God put on display at the cross? We see his holiness for his hatred for sin, his justice, his wrath, but we see his love and his mercy and his grace that he would do that on our behalf. The Father glorifies the Son, and the Son glorifies the Father in perfect unity and love. And in verse 2, we see the sovereign grace of God. Jesus has given authority over all flesh, and to have authority is to be sovereign or to be in control, and he gives eternal life to all the Father has given him. And we are reminded here that salvation is a free gift of God, purchased by Jesus. Eternal life is received by faith in Christ alone. Ephesians 2.8 tells us this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so no one may boast. And notice the unity in the, in the Godhead and the giving of eternal life. Jesus gives eternal life to all the Father has given him. In Psalm 2, 7 and 8, in talking about the Son of God, he says, Ask of me, and I will give you the nations as your inheritance. And also in the book of Hebrews, he says, I and the children God has given me. Do you know that you are a gift of the Father to Jesus? You are. We are. All of us who know Christ are a gift of the Father to Jesus. And we were purchased with his sacrifice. And in verse 5, Jesus asked the Father to glorify himself in his resurrection and ascension as he returns to the Father's right hand. And again, we see the unity and the glory and the love of the Father and Son that existed from all eternity and will exist for all eternity. And again, Jesus is in full control of the whole situation. He's going to the cross and he knows it. He's going to rise again, and he knows it. He's going to go back to the Father, and he knows it. And yet, he's praying about it. It really struck me as I worked through this. He knows it's going to happen. He is God in the flesh. He knows exactly what's going to happen, and yet he's praying for the Father to glorify himself in it. And it's a testimony to the fact there's a mystery in prayer. We sometimes can think, and I myself sometimes have thought, well, God is sovereign. Why should I pray about that? He's going to do what he's going to do. But God uses prayer very powerfully as a means for carrying out his will. And Jesus is the, the best example of that. So God has ordained prayer but as the means by which he moves his hand and the gospel advances. The two work hand in hand. And we get to be part of that process. So let's keep praying for the advance of the gospel and the lives that we, of, of the ones we love that don't know Christ. And let's keep praying for the lives of uh, the, the salvation of people that are in our world and our, in uh, our sphere of influence that don't know Christ. And let's keep praying for the gospel to advance in our own lives as brothers and sisters in Christ that we would grow and mature in our faith in Christ. And now Jesus' prayer switches or shifts to his intercession for the disciples in verses 6 to 19. And I'm going to read this, verses 6 to 19, and as I read it, Listen for what Jesus says is true of the disciples, and then listen for what he asks for the disciples. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, 
and they have kept your word. And now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask you that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. So I'm just going to list off in rapid-fire um, manner what he said is true of the disciples. And as believers in Christ, these things are true of us. Jesus manifested the Father's name to them in verse 6. The Father gave them to Jesus out of the world, verse 6. They belong to the Father, verse 6. They have kept God's word, verse 6. They know that everything the Father has given Jesus is from him, verse 7. They have received Jesus' word and believe that the Father has sent him, verse 8. Verse 9, Jesus is praying for them specifically. Verse 10, they belong to, G to the Father and Jesus. Verse 10, Jesus is glorified in them. Verses 11, 14, and 18, they are in the world, but not of the world. Verse 11, Jesus kept them in the Father's name while he was with them. Verse 13, Jesus' word is meant to bring them his joy. Verse 18, as the Father sent Jesus into the world, so Jesus is sending them into the world. That's the mission. Jesus consecrated himself. Speaking of when he, he, was going, he died on the cross and rose again, so that they also would be sanctified by the truth. They are sanctified or set apart from the world by the truth of the gospel. So the disciples are given the mission by Jesus to take the gospel to the world. And in light of his mission, Jesus prays for them. So these are the things that he asked the Father for them. He asked the Father to keep them in his name that he has given to Jesus so that they may be one even as Jesus and the Father are one. So he prays for their unity. And this can only happen as the Father keeps them. Satan opposes the unity of God. He's done it from the start, from the Garden of Eden. And he opposes God's people at every front. But God has defeated him through Jesus. He is fighting a war that he's already lost. This unity that flows from the Father, that exists between the Father and the Son, also is, is now imparted to believers. 
It's divine in origin. Verse 17, he asked the the Father to sanctify them in the truth, that his word is truth. And sanctify means to set apart or consecrate for holy service. He's calling them into mission. He says, Father, I want you to set them apart for this mission. When the gospel grips the heart, it saves and sets believers apart from the world. Believers are in the world, but not of it, because we live for a different purpose, the kingdom of Christ. Unity is grounded in the gospel. Unity is not just everything goes, or you believe that, that's fine, da, da, da. Unity is grounded on the rock-solid truth that Jesus died and rose again, and that only through repentance and faith in him are we saved. I think about different situations, and, and we all struggle uh, at times with unity. And I think sometimes just to ask this question, how should the gospel change me in this situation? How should knowing that this unity is divine and this unity that, that I am united with this person I'm struggling with through the, the very unity that exists in the Godhead, how should that change how I think and how I'm treating this person? And how should I, I take the message of Christ into the world I I need to do it in unity. We need to do it in unity with one another. And now in verses 20 to 26, Jesus will turn the focus from the mission to the relationship, and how do we do that? Verse 20 says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Verse 20, who is Jesus praying for? He says, I ask for not these, not, not, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Their word is the gospel. That's the, the disciples took that word out. People believed. The, the Holy Spirit was sent, and people believed. And then those people took the word out, and other people believed. And it kept going on and on through the centuries until all of us in this room today who have put our faith in Christ have a testimony that we believe the gospel, and God used people, his people, to bring that about. So he's talking about us. He's talking about every believer from every age. Jesus came preaching the kingdom of God. He lived a perfect life. He died for the sins of mankind, and he rose from the dead. And now he's passing that mission on to the disciples then, and now he's passing it on to us now. It's an amazing privilege that we have to take this message. 
In verses 6 to 19, we see him praying for the unity of the disciples to carry on the mission. And now we see that, as I mentioned, he's including us in that. And his prayer in verses 20 to 26 focuses on unity, glory, and love. He prays that all believers may be one. We are united together through the finished work of Christ. Everyone in this room, every believer of every age, we are united with. Unity originates in God, as we mentioned. It's in his very nature. The Lord our God is one. The scriptures teach that, and yet, as we mentioned, he exists in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each possess all the attributes of the Godhead. It's a great mystery, and yet the scripture teaches it, and we believe it. God's unity in himself is perfect. There are no flaws in the unity of God. And, and this passage says that this unity the same unity that exists between the Father and the Son exists between us as believers. We are one just as, not kind of like, just as the Father and Son are one. Admittedly, that doesn't seem to be the case all the time, does it? <clears throat> we all have different personalities and preferences, and we have remnants of our, our sinful flesh that's going to battle this, and Satan's going to battle this. But in Christ, we have to remind ourselves that we have the same unity that exists in the Godhead. It's a deep relational unity. Jesus said, the Father in him and he in us. And it's, it's intimate. It's holy. And it's powerful. In the death and resurrection of Christ, the barrier of sin is removed and unity is restored between God and man and mankind with each other. In fact, in, in John's first epistle, in verses 1 through 4, he says that Jesus has come to restore us to fellowship with God and with each other. And you notice how important that this unity is. Jesus says, they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I need to think about that for a second. So that the world would believe. God is sovereign over all creation. And yes, he's sovereign over the salvation of his elect. And yet here Jesus says that the world will believe when they see the unity in the body of Christ as they are proclaiming the good news. Brothers and sisters, we have a huge responsibility to take the gospel to the world, and we must strive for that unity together to do so. And our testimony in the world is received as we take that message of Christ in unity. So just as God uses prayer to bring about the success of the gospel, so God uses the unity of the body of Christ to further the gospel, and we must be diligent to pursue that. In verses 22 to 24, he talks about his glory. How does Jesus give his glory to his disciples? John chapter 1, he says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. In, in John 12 and 14, Jesus says that whoever <clears throat> excuse me, has seen him has seen the Father. Hebrews 1, verses 1 to 4, that says that Jesus is the radiance of of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus is God, and when they saw Jesus, they saw God. They saw the Father. 
So when the world sees the unity of the believers that originates in the Godhead, they're seeing a manifestation of God. Not in any way that we are God, but we are reflecting in his glory. We are his image bearers. Fifty days later, the Holy Spirit would be sent to dwell in them. He had promised this in chapters 14 to 16. And the Holy Spirit dwelling in each and every believer, each and every one of us, is the glory of God to each of God's people. Listen to the words of Peter, Second Peter. <clears throat> he says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. In the new birth, when we put our faith in Christ and the Holy Spirit comes and regenerates us, the glory of God now dwells in us. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. This is what Paul meant when he said, uh, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And in the fall, the image of God was marred in man, but in Christ, we are recreated in his image. And God now dwells in each believer. So in this sense, God's glory is given to us. And yet, there's a future glory. He finishes by asking that the believers would share in his future glory, to be with him where he is. And Jesus, what Jesus prays for, we can be assured that it's going to happen. And so we are secure in Christ, and we have a hope and a future. And even though we may face trials and tribulations here, we can rest assured that God will finish what he has begun in us. And even though we don't walk in perfect unity here, we're striving for it, but we know that one day we will be in perfect unity, and we will have no strife among each ourselves. And notice again, he says it again, that the result of his glory being given to his disciples, revealed in their unity, is so that the world may believe that he sent him and that the Father loved them just as he loves Jesus. Again, we see the importance of our testimony. And we see the world, when the world sees the unity and the love of the believers, they're witnessing a visible representation of the glory of God. And notice he says again that the Father loved, loves us just as he loves Jesus. That is a phenomenal thought. We don't often feel that way. We, we can see our own sin. We can see where we've fallen short and we think, how could God possibly love me? But his love is perfect. And his love in Christ for you, for me, is the same love that he has for Jesus. He loved Jesus before the foundation of the world. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have always existed. The eternal God. He loved us before the foundation of the world. In Ephesians 1, he says that he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. And in love, he predestined us to adoption as sons. That truth, we need to think about that and meditate upon that. Even before there was dirt, God loved us. Before we ever committed one sin, before we ever had one sickness, 
before we ever experienced any hard circumstances, before we ever had any hard relationships or any broken relationships, God loved us. And the, Father, the love that the Father has for Jesus is a perfect love, one that is pure and without sin. When Jesus was baptized, the Father spoke and said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And when we are in Christ, God is well pleased with us. We don't have to perform to earn his love. Do you ever feel as if you're on a performance roller coaster? I know I do. You know, you have a good day, you may pray, you may read your Bible, you may share your faith, you may feel good about yourself, but then you have a bad day. You think and do things that you're ashamed of, you say things, you hurt people, and you think you have to do things to make up for it, to get back to God's good graces. We need to realize that God loves us just as he loved Jesus. And the sacrifice of Christ covers all of our sins. And the unity and the love that exists between the Father now exists between us and God and us and each other. Now that doesn't give us a license to sin by any means, but it does give us motivation to pursue him with all of our being. This love that God loves us with in Christ is an eternal love and it's a perfect love. God is passionately in love with you. If you th think about that and say it aloud in your head, God is passionately in love with me. It's amazing. We've got to let that sink deep down into our hearts and begin to change how we live. And we need to remember when we struggle with others, we need to say, God is passionately in love with so-and-so. And he's passionately in love with me. So what are we going to do about that? If God loves us like this, which he does, then we are not dependent on our circumstances or the opinions of others or the reactions of others. If we are following Christ and seeking to love others with his love, then we are freed up to live with reckless abandon. We are freed up to love others with this same love. And we are freed up to pursue his mission with no holds barred. So as we wind it down, unity and glory and love are all imparted to believers <clears throat> through the regeneration of the Holy Spirit that we experience through faith in Christ. And I'm going to ask Ken to pull up my Final diagram, actually my third diagram, one more time. We, we all are partakers of God's glory and the unity and the love in the Godhead now, in part. This is like salvation in the moment we put our faith in Christ. You know, the Holy Spirit has awakened us and the Holy Spirit regenerates us and we, we place our faith in Christ and we come into one body and yet we look at ourselves and we think, I don't feel very holy right now. In fact, I feel pretty much like I did the moment before I put my faith in Christ. But God's spirit lives in us. And we, we come to a place where we put our faith in Christ and now we begin the process of following Christ, what the Bible calls sanctification. Unity and love and the glory of God are, are, are all part of that. He, he puts it into us through his Holy Spirit. Paul says that the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts through the Holy Spirit was given to us. And that now dwells in us, but we have to fight for it. Paul also said we have to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. And unity and love are hard, 
It means dying to ourselves and, 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 and putting others first, loving God and loving others. But the heart of Jesus' prayer, I will repeat that as we did at the beginning, that the body of Christ would display the glory of God by carrying out his mission of taking the gospel to the world in unity and love. And that's the mission of KBC. Christ handed the mission off to the disciples. They handed it off to the next generation, the next generation, the next generation, and now it's in our hands. So three points to, to finish up. Let's make the mission of Christ the mission of our lives, individually and collectively. And let's strive to live in unity and love with one another. And let's give each other some grace. We're not going to be perfect at it. Let's remember that sanctification is a process. So let's not view each other as already arrived. Let's each view each other as in the process together. And just as Jesus prayed for this to happen, let us pray for this to happen. As Jesus said, Father, glorify your son, yourself in me that I may glorify you. We, we could say, Father, glorify your son in us that we might glorify you. So let's pray. And as we bow our heads, I'm going to uh, just read a short passage from Ephesians that Paul in Ephesians 1 through 3 had just laid out the amazing uh, truths of the salvation that's in Christ and the truths of the unity of the, that, uh, of the church and all the blessings in Christ. And then he comes to his application point. He says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Let's pray. Father, we are blown away by your love for us, that you love us just as you love Jesus. We can't fathom that, Father. We see our sin and we're ashamed. We think things and do things that we ought not to do and and yet we know we have to come back to the cross. And that at the cross, every single sin, every part of our nature that rebelled against you, you have punished that in your son. So we are free. And through your Holy Spirit, you now indwell us in the same unity that exists between you and Jesus and the Holy Spirit. The one true God exists in us. And the same love that you have for Jesus, you have for us. And Father, we know that we fall far short of carrying out your mission. And we know we fall short in our relationships in unity and love, but we want to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. We want to see you work in our midst, in all of our relationships. Father, would you do that? Would you glorify Jesus in us that we might glorify you? We praise you, God, and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.
Thank you for joining us at Kishwaukee Bible Church. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H, bible.org.